Thanks for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the podcast from Dream Queen's Medical Centre at Nottingham. In this episode, we'll be discussing therapeutics, antithrombotics, part two, anticoagulants. As ever, all information is correct at the time of recording. All guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospitals NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Hello, welcome back to Take Orally. And uh, we're delighted once again to have our favourite uh, pharmacist once again with us. Hello, Canal. Good morning again. How are you? Very well, very well. Good. So, we previously dominated antiplatelets. Yes, we went, we went a lot of, went nice in depth into antiplatelets. And now we're looking at anticoagulants. Anticoagulants. So the, some people say the scary older brother of the antiplatelets, even though that's not necessarily true. They've both got their place. Um, so anticoagulants, um, when we tell our patients we're putting them on anticoagulants, we say we're putting them on blood thinners. Yeah. Quite a classic thing. Nice patient expression to do it. Uh, anticoagulants in no way thin the blood. <laughs> they, blood is absolutely as thick and or as thin as it would be in any other patient. What, what the anticoagulants do is they affect the coagulation mechanism if your blood was deciding to clot. So it's a slight misnomer, but it's an important thing to, to point out. It is, it is a nice way of pointing out to your patients. So we talked um, in the last podcast about our nice um, blood vessel, whether it be arterial, whether it be venous, whether it be capillary, um, and we we talked about how platelets aggregate and they form um, uh, a mesh structure with fibrin and with red blood cells and potentially with fat um, that causes a clot and, or a thrombus. Sure. Um, so we talked about how antiplatelets uh, knock out one of the phases of the way that aggregation happens yeah. uh, by stopping the platelets sticking together which is an important way of, of starting it. Now, when we talk about anticoagulants, um, we talk, they're very potent drugs, um, and they don't affect platelets per se, they affect the fibrin strands. So the fibrin strands are effectively things that glue the platelets um, and the red blood cells um, and more fibrin together to form that big cohesive structure of the clot. Yeah. Um, so we use anticoagulants in slightly different circumstances than we do in antiplatelets. Um, rule of thumb is generally antiplatelets we use more in arterial disorders with atherosclerosis um, and our anticoagulants we use more in venous disorders, so DVTs, um, places where you're going to get big structural uh, clots forming before you get symptoms of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's unfortunately quite a complicated mechanism in, to, in comparison to the antiplatelets. So, so Canal is bringing out the diagram of the clotting cascade, everyone's favourite diagram. I was on the A&E shop floor sorting out some methadone for a nice chat and I wrote this down from memory as best as I can remember. Now you are just showing off. <laughs> we try. So fibrin. So we've said fibrin is a protein that's uh, in the blood that links these clots together. Now fibrin is produced um, from a precursor called fibrinogen um, and generally then that's activated as part of the coagulation ca- cascade so once you get that endothelial insult your production of fibrinogen creating fibrin um, is, is, um, is, is facilitated by the whole process and they, they give you the fibrin strands that give you the cohesive clot that starts the bleeding. Now the process by which we get to this um, is by two mechanisms. The most important one for an endothelial insult, um, an external endothelial insult, um, so a cut, a bruise, uh, some sort of trauma, is the extrinsic pathway um, of of getting that fibrinogen to fibrin. Um, So this happens when um, the damaged blood vessel leaks out a protein called tissue factor, 
Uh, and in combination with tissue factor, we have lots and lots of clotting factors um, that are floating around in the blood. And between tissue factor and something called factor seven, um, which becomes activated when we're needing a clot formed to factor seven A, um, this causes a cascade. So factor seven A and the tissue factor, um, they facilitate the conversion of another clotting factor, a really important one called factor 10, which is a very potent clotting factor. And they facilitate factor 10 being converted to factor 10A, which is a very, very key protein mm -hmm. for facilitating the, um, um, the formation of a clot. Mm -hmm. Factor 10A then converts uh, another protein from, called prothrombin into a protein called thrombin. And thrombin is the main catalyst for, for getting fibrinogen into fibrin. So lots of steps, 10A, 10A sorts out thrombin, thrombin sorts out fibrin. So it's a cascade that goes down really nicely. Now this then- All written in Roman numerals. All the well. Roman numerals. So the 10 is an X. Absolutely. The all 7 is V11. Always been, always been denoted in Roman numerals for whatever reason. <laughs> um, now this process is good, it's very effective, but it's slow. Um, the way that the body um, gets this clot form quicker is there's then another pathway which is called the intrinsic pathway, which involves a lot of other factors, um, factor 11, factor nine, a few other different factors. There's a cascade that all these clotting factors are activated. Um, and eventually what they also facilitate is that, um, is that conversion from factor 10 A, from factor 10 to factor 10 A. So you get a small speedy production of the factor 10 A as a result of that. Now, all of this combining means you get that fibrin, and that fibrin is then you get it in greater amounts and you get the clot formed as a result. Now, that, like we talked about last time, that is the mesh. That's the mesh. Upon which the platelets and the red blood cells Absolutely. form your clot. Absolutely, so your, your clot, what your clot is made up of is, if you think about it like a big sandwich, platelets, fibrin, platelets, fibrin, maybe some red blood cells thrown in there, more fibrin, more platelets, and they stack up and they layer up and they get bigger and bigger and bigger and that's how you get your clot. Now, there's two things that can do once it gets nice and big. It either occludes that vessel mm -hmm. to form the arterial thrombus, mm -hmm. um, which is obviously a problem for, for a DVT to restrict blood supply to the rest of your, your body. Yep. Um, or the other option is that then breaks off and then becomes mobile, in which case it's going to another part of the body in your smaller vessels, or worst case scenario, going to your brain and causing a stroke. Embolization. Embolization, absolutely. Um, so our anticoagulant drugs, and we have quite a few of them with all various mechanisms, target different areas in this coagulation cascade that we've just, um, sure. that we've just chatted about. So before we go into that, we'll talk quickly about the different indications that we do it. And the absolute number one indication that you'll find patients on an anticoagulant for um, is AF, atrial fibrillation. So this is a cardiac arrhythmia, an atrial arrhythmia, where the atrials and the ventricles don't contract as they should do. Uh, so we get quivering of the atria, we don't get proper signal transduction down to the ventricles, uh, and as a result, there's poor blood supply from the atrials, blood transfer, I should say, from the atria to the ventricles. Because there's that poor blood supply and there's a particular area in the heart called the left atrial appendage, which is a bit where blood can really get stuck in if we don't get an efficient heartbeat, um, after a while, that blood will start to congeal and clot. Um, so it'll get hard, it'll get thick as a result. 
that's no good because once the heartbeat gets, once the AF gets fast or once we're potentially cardioverted into a normal rhythm, um, that can become dislodged. And if that's dislodged, we have a big thrombus that can then go to other parts of the body, cause a PE, cause a stroke, cause a DVT, all these sort of things. Which is why we cardioverted a patient, electrical cardioversion on a patient after 48 hours unless they've had uh, proper anticoagulation for that very same risk. Absolutely. What you, the last thing you want to do is find a patient that's been in AF for, for two weeks, that they're brewing this big clot in their left atrial appendage. Um, we then very cleverly decide to DC cardiovert them. We literally contract the whole heart in one go and it just dislodges that clot beautifully and then they go and have a stroke. So we have to be very, very careful about that. Um, and this is the reason we anticoagulate. So some other indications, as we said, if patients have had a previous known emboli, um, so if they've had a provoked or unprovoked PE, if they've had a provoked or unprovoked DVT, um, or if they've got a particular disorder in their blood, um, so uh, protein S deficiency would be an example, antiphospholipid syndrome uh, would be another example, um, patients that naturally have a, a high risk of clotting, mm. we will traditionally use anticoagulants in this patient profile. Now, a really good question is why antiplatelets don't work in this profile as well as anticoagulants. Because we already talked about an antiplatelet podcast that aspirin shouldn't be used in AS. Absolutely. Yeah. So we, we know that the antiplatelets, they aggregate together um, and they, they will stop fibrin production, not stop fibrin production, but you'll disrupt some of that clot forming um, if you give an antiplatelet. But yet we found that antiplatelets are far less effective than anticoagulants in this profile. And we think it's probably because of the way the fibrin uh, works in the clot structure. Mm -hmm. So because the fibrin can literally physically trap platelets, irrespective if they're aggregated together, um, you can still get a thrombus formed even though you're, you've knocked out most of your platelets. Sure. Now, the mechanism is not brilliantly well understood. We, we, don't, know, we don't know exactly why it happens, uh, why the antiplatelets are less effective. We just know that anticoagulants are more effective. Um, and we think, theory, in theory, it's because of the way the fibrin encompasses these platelets and these red blood cells to form that clot. Um, so anticoagulants in these situations are definitely more effective. Now, if we talk about our anticoagulants, um, we've got lots and lots of different options. And mm. there's a lot of different factors that we'd have to consider when thinking about these options. So if we start off with our best friend in secondary care, which are the heparins, Yes. So in secondary care, when we need to anticoagulate someone quickly, um, when we need to make sure those clots aren't pinging out, um, we're going to use a heparin. So there's two different types of heparin. We have the older fashioned heparin, which is unfractionated heparin. Uh, and we have its sort of cousin, the low molecular weight heparins, which now we tend to use a lot more of. Um, Often put as um, LMWH. LMWH. And these That's actually genuinely think then. <laughs> Absolutely, LMWH. So if we start off with unfractionated heparin, so there's only one type of unfractionated heparin, uh, and this is a this is almost usually run as an IV infusion. It's extremely short acting, unfortunately, um, basically because it's degraded in the blood quite quickly. So to get any real use out of unfractionated heparin, we have to run it as a continuous infusion. So we load it up and then run it as a continuous infusion. Um, now, how does this work on that cascade? So we said that um, the various pathways convert factor 10 into factor 10A. Mm. Now, what would usually happen is the body has a natural um, 
a natural anticoagulant built into it to a certain extent. And this is a product called antithrombin, uh, antithrombin-3. So this is basically a mechanism that the body has to make sure that the, our clotting cascade isn't going absolutely crazy and we're not clotting our blood in our vessels. Um, and what that does is it's an inhibitor. So it inhibits um, factor 10A, factor 10A. And it also has the effect of um, inhibiting thrombin. Mm. And as a result, you get less of that fibrin production. Um, so this stuff is floating around in your blood as normal. Now what heparin does, uh, unfractionated heparin, is it will get into the blood and it will talk to that antithrombin-3 um, protein and it will bind together and they'll form an antithrombin-3 heparin complex. What this does is it causes a conformational change to make that antithrombin incredibly more potent and effective. So what you get is this antithrombin-heparin process um, is very, very potent in inhibiting factor 10A and thrombin. And as a result, you get that less, less of that fibrin production and the clot can't grow as a result. So very effective stuff. We've used it for years. And the problem with unfractionated heparin, as we've said, is the fact you have to run it as a continuous infusion. It is fiddly to use. Um, it's a very good product as well, because if patients, unfortunately, the problem is, again, using anticoagulants, patients can bleed as a result. Um, we can reverse it very, very, very quickly with a classic antidote called protamine, which just chelates the heparin out of the blood. You can reverse it within a, in an instant almost. Um, so it's got its place. Um, it's useful potentially. We used to use it a lot in MIs um, as anticoagulant cover after an MI, or in vascular conditions, so ischemic limb type syndromes. Um, we'll use a lot of unfractionated heparin, where we need to get a very potent anticoagulant effect. The problem was is that it's not easy to use, it's time consuming, mm. um, it's a difficult infusion to manage, and mm. it requires a lot of monitoring, um, because we have to potentially monitor our prothrombin times to make sure we're not over-anticoagulating somebody. So as a result, um, we came up with a drug called, well, the drug, the group of drugs are the low molecular weight heparins. Yeah. So these are still heparin-type drugs, they have a very similar structure to unfractionated heparin, but they're much smaller. Um, as a result, we don't have to necessarily put them straight into the blood. We can give them subcutaneously, and they're absorbed nicely into the bloodstream because they're small enough to be able to do that. Um, the low molecular weight heparins, unfortunately, don't target thrombin. So we said the heparin has the the heparin antithrombin three complex works on factor ten A and on thrombin. The low molecular weight heparin and antithrombin three complex. Has, still has a good effect on factor 10A, so you'll still get that, um, that fibrin, um, that the lack of fibrin production as a result, but you get less effect on thrombin, uh, thrombin directly. So it's a slightly, probably slightly weaker anticoagulant than giving an unfractionated heparin. That being said, it's a lot more useful in terms of being able to dose it once a day. Um, we can even potentially, if we want to, send patients off with subcutaneous um, heparin. Um, to be able to take, to be able to take daily uh, as an anticoagulant, as, as a routine secondary mm -hmm. prevention option. Um, so when we talk about the, the low molecular weight heparins, we're talking about the three classic ones: are anoxaparin, uh, which is the one we use here at NUH, um, galtaparin, very very similar, and a drug called timazepaparin. Um, the three classic low molecular weight heparins. There is very little evidence to say that any one is better or worse than the other. Um, currently, the guidance in, in England is whichever one you can get hold of the cheapest you use. Um, so here at NUH, we use anoxaparin. My previous trust used alteparin. Uh, down the road in Birmingham, they'll use timazepaparin. 
Sure. So no real difference. They have a very, very similar effect. They're just slightly different commercial preparations. And they're your 40 milligrams once a day for prophylaxis, patients on the ward, yeah. your 1.5 milligram per kilogram in case of PE, DVT. Absolutely. That's, you know, that, that's our... That's our normal thing. That's here, our yeah. Normal. So thromboprophylaxis dose is obviously a bit lower. They don't actually have evidence of, of an actual thrombus. Um, they're simply we're stopping we're trying to stop the thrombus from being formed because of the immobility um, and if we're needing a treatment dose when they have an active or suspected thrombus somewhere then we're using a much more aggressive dose of 1.5 milligram per per kg once a day or the more aggressive treatment which is a one mg per kg bd um, mm. dosing strategy both are legitimate options um, the product license says you can use either one of those for, for most conditions. Mm. Um, here at NUH, we prefer just using it once a day because it's slightly easier. Um, the ones you get to a certain size, and if you're pregnant, it is the... the yes, so the, the, the kinetics change a little bit, that's right, uh, in terms of the absorption, so you have to give it twice a day. Um, always remember, heparin, the low molecular weight heparin is really excreted. So if you've got a patient with CKD or an AKI or for whatever reason is renally impaired, we have to think about reducing that dose. And there's specific dosing droppage uh, depending on the product you're using. So if they don't get rid of it and you're effectively overdosing. Absolutely. So it just builds and builds and builds in their system and then their bleed risk goes up and up and up, unfortunately. So, um, so that's the heparins, our, our friends in secondary care. Um, now, when you, when you see most patients, um, probably changing slightly less now, but at least about 10 years ago, um, who are on a regular anticoagulant, um, probably the oldest drug is the Coumarins. Mm. Um, so the Coumarins are a, a group of drugs that work on vitamin K, and these encompass, the, the one that we use the most in the UK is warfarin. Um, so warfarin, classically, the blood thinning drug, um, and it's an oral therapy. You can't give heparins orally, unfortunately, because of the size of the, and the way the proteins are. Um, so warfarin and or other coumarins were the mainstay of, of oral anticoagulant treatment for, for a long, for a long, 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 long time. Rat poison. Rat poison is what they call it in America. Yeah, it's poison rats on it, and it will make you bleed awfully if you uh, if you get it wrong. Um, very, very effective love drugs. So. People would call them a miracle drug from about 20 or 30 years ago. They reduced mortality massively uh, and they gave patients a, a decent oral option to be able to control their symptoms um, when we discharged them from hospital. Um, some of the other coumarins use much less often drugs like acenocoumarol, um, nicoumarin, uh, and there's another couple of ones as well, uh, synthrome as well. They all work in the same way. Sure. They're just ever so slightly idiosyncratically different um, in terms of how they work. Now, these are not normal once-a-day drugs like our blood pressure tablets or antiplatelets or anything like this. We have to be able to monitor their effect on anticoagulation, how effective or ineffective are they being. And as a result, patients that take warfarin will not necessarily take the same dose every day. They, you could have one patient that takes about three milligram a day, another patient might need 20 milligram a day to get the same effect. So as a result, we have to monitor the blood test to show how, how anticoagulated this person. Are they over-anticoagulated? Are they under-anticoagulated? Are we getting this right? Now, warfarin, usually we associate with something called the INR, the International Normalized Ratio. So what this is, is effectively a, a measurement of their prothrombin time. Mm. 
um, and it's a measurement of that actual prothrombin time that we measured in that patient versus the expected prothrombin time. And the ratio of those two numbers give us, give us a, a numeral that denotes the INR. Now, most patients that we treat on warfarin, we want their INR to be between two and three. Mm -hmm. So, i.e., their blood takes two to three times longer to clot in the same way as a person that wasn't treated on warfarin. So you're assuming then that I'm not on warfarin, therefore my INR is be one. one. Our INRs should be one, assuming we don't have any ridiculous anticoagulant yeah. stuff that we don't know about going on. Liver failure or fat chance. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So liver failure people will have an INR that's a little bit off. Um, but usually all normal people not taking an anticoagulant should have an INR of one. Um, our patients on warfarin, we want to treat them between two and three. Mm. Occasionally, if they're very high risk, so if they've got things like mechanical heart valves or antiphospholipid syndromes that makes them very high risk of growing clots, occasionally it can be between three and four. Um, now, the way the INR works is very, very clear. If you take one thing from this podcast, take this. INR is only associated with warfarin. So INR will only give you an accurate representation of anticoagulation in a patient that is on warfarin or is on a coumarin. That's because the test is validated to look at the clotting factors um, that warfarin affects. Mm. So the mechanism of action of warfarin is it inhibits the vitamin K reductase pathway. So we were talking about all these clotting factors, factor seven um, is the key one, factor five is another one. Um, all the factors that are in uh, that are involved in that conversion of factor 10 to factor 10A that gives us the key key effects. To make those clotting factors, you need vitamin K, you need reduced vitamin K, um, which facilitates the generation of those. What the warfarin actually is, is it's a vitamin K reductase inhibitor. So it stops the body's ability from utilizing vitamin K to create these clotting factors. Sure. The problem is, obviously, is people's intake of vitamin K and their reserves of vitamin K in their body are completely different. Mm -hmm. So if, if there's a lot of vitamin K flowing around, if there's not a lot of vitamin K flowing around, their INR can vary as a result. And that's why it needs to be monitored. So there's a lot of patient factors associated with that. Mm -hmm. um, and you need more or less warfarin to get the same effect in, in that case. So as a result, you need to, to monitor the INR to see how they're, they're getting on. And there's some tinkering therefore involved. Absolutely, particularly in the initial stages um, yeah. to, to get that person right at the right time. So you might find that a, a person that started on warfarin would need to have an INR taken potentially every couple of days until we can get, get that, the INR level sure. consistently between two and three um, or whatever the target was at that point. Now, from a practical point of view, um, Warfarin comes in three different tablet strengths because, as we've said, you could, some patients could be happy on one milligram, some would need 20. Um, they come in a, a half a milligram, a one milligram, a three milligram, a five milligram. They're all colour-coded, which is very clever, probably the cleverest thing they ever did with warfarin. Um, because your patients can then identify the tablets they're taking by the colour, and it's an extra psychological check for them, because the last thing you want them is, is them taking too much. Mm. Um, We've had patients in ED that were prescribed warfarin that are colorblind, that have taken the complete wrong doses. Um, we've had patients that were told their dose in milligrams but were taking that amount in tablets, um, which is a big problem. So you have to make sure your patient is gonna have the ability to be able to take this warfarin effectively, because there's a lot of patient control in this, um, 
in, in this type of patient. Um, they'll have the classic yellow book you might be familiar with. So if they're on warfarin, they'll be attached to an anticoagulant clinic and their dosing information will be put in a little yellow book called the anticoagulation book. So whenever you're treating a patient with warfarin or you're doing a consultation, the yellow book is always a really useful thing to look at their control, tell you what dose they're on and see how they're getting on with it. Mm-hmm. Um, warfarin unfortunately interacts with a lot of different drugs mm-hmm. um, and it would do because of its sensitivity. So a lot of drugs that mess around with the liver um, can increase the INR. So antibiotics, unfortunately, um, the macrolides, the quinolones, these can have quite a drastic effect on warfarin levels. Um, so if you're prescribing antibiotics or starting any new therapy uh, in a patient that's established on warfarin, they need to have that INR rechecked. And we potentially need to be thinking about the drugs we're giving them alongside that, that therapy. Um, and then obviously diet is the other thing because the whole mechanism of its action is based on vitamin K. If they all of a sudden decide to have a green leafy vegetable binge over a week, um, they have a lot more resources of vitamin K to utilize to create those clotting factors and you'll find their INR will go down as a result. So vitamin K is, is, is in like so, so spinach, kale, all those you know dark green. Yeah, just typically veg, yeah. typically associated with your green leafy vegetables, but also seeds. There's a, a lot of different things vitamin K can be in, but classically your green leafy vegetables. Um, so you need to be very careful. It's not a problem for a patient to have all this stuff. We don't want to affect their diet on it. Mm. The key thing is they remain consistent on what they take. Um, what you don't want is a patient that has a completely different diet on a different month and is sort of yo-yo dieter because you can find their INR control will be very different sure. um, because of that. Um, so warfarin, very, very good drug, very important drug um, in terms of probably the history of medicine, really important drug because um, it's given people the opportunity to, to take oral anticoagulants at home. And a lot of people say patient empowerment. They really look after their, they can look after their own care. <laughs> people that get on well with warfarin they're, they're experts on its use and they know exactly what they're doing with it. Some people can even do their own INRs at home via a little blood test and a little blood glucose and they'll dose their own warfarin. That's how good they can get at managing it. But on the flip side of that, you've got patients who don't like doing that, who who may have read that it's a rat poison, who yep. don't want to come in to do their INR, who don't want regular blood tests. Absolutely. So there's a flip side, isn't there? There is a flip side. And the flip side brings us on to the newer anticoagulants. So. As you quite rightly said, warfarin, a really good drug, that works, but there's a lot of commitment to getting it right. Um, it's also a lot, of, it's a lot of burden on healthcare to get it right. These people have to come in very often for blood tests, that might involve district nurses going out to take the blood test, them coming in to do blood tests. Um, you might find your patients that are less um, competent to be able to dose this stuff themselves. Um, they're gonna think of your patients with dementia, patients um, who don't have the ability to take their own things, blind patients, color blind, these sort of things. So there's a lot of profiles that would be difficult to use warfarin in. Mm. As a result, very, very new set of drugs, and when I say very new, within the 10 years that have come out, are drugs uh, that are very hot topic at the moment called the direct uh, oral anticoagulants, the DOACs, formerly known as the NOACs. When they were new and novel. When they were novel. Um, novel anti, uh, oral anticoagulant drugs. Now these drugs, yeah, they're, not novel anymore. they're not novel, that's why we call them DOACs, they're formally called DOACs now. Now what DOACs do is they work either, there's two different types of DOAC, there's what we call the factor 10A inhibitor, so we talked previously about heparin 
um, forming that antithrombin complex and inhibiting factor 10A. These drugs do a very similar job mm. in terms of binding to that factor 10A and taking them out of commission. Mm. Um, the two drugs that we use, well, there's three drugs I should say we use in the UK that um, are factor 10A inhibitors. Rivaroxaban, which is the oldest, Apixaban, and uh, Idoxaban is the, is the newest one of the three. All of these are factor 10A inhibitors. The other drug, uh, which is the slightly older drug, which is actually a direct thrombin inhibitor, so it's one step down from 10A, direct, uh, blocks thrombin altogether, is a drug called dabigatran, um, which again, all of them lumped together are the direct oral anticoagulants. So these are drugs that are fixed dose, once or twice a day, depending on which one you're taking, and they therapeutically anticoagulate you in a similar way to the, the way the low molecular weight heparins will do. So people have argued these have revolutionized the treatment of, um, of AF and anticoagulants um, because it's meant we've off, been able to offer patients an oral anticoagulant that hasn't involved warfarin where they, their lifestyle can't mean they can use warfarin. Um, very, very important drugs. There's a lot of very interesting, very subtle differences between DOACs and you could record a whole different podcast on just the choice of DOAC. Um, the key thing, the key points to remember about the DOACs versus warfarin, which is usually the choice you're going to be talking to your patients about. You have AF, your CHADVAS means that you should be anticoagulated. Mm. We can offer you warfarin or a DOAC. NICE guidance says that we should give them an informed choice of whether they want to use warfarin or whether they can use the DOACs. Now, the benefit of warfarin is we can track exactly its anticoagulant activity via blood tests. Um, and they've got a lot of control of what they're doing. Mm. The other argument is that warfarin is completely reversible. So if somebody uh, actually comes in with a bleed on warfarin, um, we're able to give them a big slug of vitamin K and pretty much bring that, that INR back down to zero and reduce their bleeding risk. So warfarin's got its benefits. Um, the DOACs on the other side don't require as much monitoring. Um, we need to do routine bloods in terms of renal function and liver function. Um, more sparsely, so I think it's at three months and then at six months thereafter uh, is the usual guidance. They don't have to have an INR constantly, they can just take the tablet as normal. Um, the downside is there is an antidote for dabigatran, not at the moment for the other ones, um, and a little bit more difficult to use in terms of there's bleeding, there's more of a risk of a catastrophic bleed um, that's thought. But generally, all the evidence says that the DOACs are more effective at preventing strokes and further clots mm. than warfarin is. Sure. Um, generally, generally, all of the drugs associated with a lower bleed risk than sure. warfarin and more, more or equal effectiveness as warfarin mm. in terms of preventing clots. Mm. So there's a lot of discussions um, to have, need to make sure they're very, very informed with it. Um, I'm a fan of the DOACs. I think they open up the opportunity for patients to uh, that they wouldn't have had previously if they can't use warfarin as it stands. Sure. Um, so, guys, my, uh, see, I mean, I, I, this isn't official guidance, but one of my colleagues in research spoke to a hematologist about this issue of, I have a patient who is bleeding, or we suspect is bleeding, who is on 
one of the DOACs, I can't remember which one it was. Their argument from the hematology point of view was if it is 12 hours since that dose was taken, so it's taken in the morning, it's evening now, mm -hmm. uh, if their renal function is fine, that patient should in theory mm -hmm. actually be not anticoagulated at that point Absolutely. and so it could carry on as normal. Absolutely. So, so that was that, I mean, I'm not sure how official that is and I don't want people to, to you know, obviously yeah. always follow what your trust says or your, your local authority, but that was their rough guidance. Which, Absolutely. Which makes sense. It does make sense. So warfarin, as we said, when you take it, you're going to have potentially, if you take one dose for one day, you're going to have a residual anticoagulant effect for several days after because you've taken out a lot of vitamin K use, usage at that point. Um, so there's a residual effect for quite a while. You monitor that through INR. The DOACs, however, as we've said, because they're once-daily fixed-dose regimens, once you've taken a tablet and they're eliminated from your system, they're eliminated renally, you are not anticoagulated anymore, which is why you have to be very, very careful with compliance for the DOACs. They have to take them on time um, every day as normal. So you're quite right. So say a Pixaban, for example, is usually the DOAC of choice for patients with a slightly higher bleed risk. This is a twice daily preparation, and when they take it at eight o'clock in the morning, in theory, by six to eight o'clock that evening, they have got very little apixaban left in their system, and they're not anticoagulated. So if they were bleeding, there'd be very little um, benefit from trying to reverse that bleed at that point. So it's a clinical argument, but versus the warfarin, we can just push vitamin K and then we know they're safe. Mm. Um, though it does take a little while for that vitamin K to be absorbed and replenished. Sure. Um, there's an argument to say, is there any clinical difference in a catastrophic bleed? So unfortunately, um, say there could be a situation, it unfortunately does happen, uh, all the anticoagulants will increase the risk of a catastrophic um, hemorrhagic stroke, for yeah. example. Um, or, or an intracerebral bleed of, of whatever type. Mm -hmm. Now, if that catastrophic effect happens, um, there is evidence that warfarin, if we give vitamin K early, you can get better outcomes because of that. Mm -hmm. Now, the DOACs, there is an antidote that's out for one of them. There is an antidote that's gonna be out soon for the, um, the 10A inhibitors. Those products, those antidotes, have got their license um, through, theoret through the theoretical interaction of, of chelating the DOAC out of the blood. There's actually no evidence yet that giving the antidote actually improves outcomes. Mm. So there is an argument um, that I subscribe to to a certain extent, mm. um, which is that if you've had a catastrophic bleed, the damage is done, and giving an antidote at that point isn't going to actually affect outcomes later on. So by that logic, I generally don't put that much weight on the reversibility of the anticoagulant when I offer it to my patients. I hope that, that makes sense. Mm. Um, it's something that'll grow with time, so we might find actually these antidotes are absolutely brilliant and they prevent mortality in, in um, catastrophic bleeds. Sure. Because we wouldn't necessarily use these antidotes in smaller bleeds where a patient is more well. In that case, we'd be more likely to just watchfully wait. Sure. Um, so it's an important one. There's a lot of a lot of discussion you can have between warfarin and the DOACs. Um, a really good piece that I read recently was about right now we're putting a lot of people on DOACs without counselling them properly about what they're on. These are very, very powerful anticoagulants. Mm. Um, a patient who put on warfarin concomitantly gets a lot of follow-up mm. because of their INR checks, because of the 
um, because of their consultations and because of the checks you need to do with interactions. So there's an argument that these people that are on warfarin get a slightly higher level of clinician interaction and care mm-hmm. than we do with the DOACs, which is a really interesting thing. Um, so we have to be careful that when we're prescribing the DOAC, we need to give them as much attention and counseling yeah. as we would do because they would be on warfarin and yeah. as much follow-up. Um, and you could argue there's less of a safety barrier in terms of us getting to see them very often. Sure. Um, so that's the DOACs. There's a lot of a lot of things going on with the DOACs. Um, got to be very careful. The one thing I would say about the DOACs is there's lots of evidence for DVT and PE prevention. Mm-hmm. There's lots of evidence for preventing clots in AF. Mm-hmm. Now, unlike warfarin, which we can use for those other conditions we talked about, protein S deficiency, antiphospholipid syndrome, those are all unlicensed in um, in DOACs. There is no there's no evidence of them being used in particular in those. Mm. Also, another one is your patients with your metallic heart valves, your metallic mitral valves, aortic mm. valves. Um, there is no there's no evidence to say these work there. And in fact, there is a paper when they tried to use dibigatran in patients with mechanical heart valves, and it was uh, unfortunately people were dying left, right, and centre, uh, and they had to stop the trial as a result. Whereas warfarin in those patients warfarin is, is well established, well established as well. It, yeah. So we will never use a, a direct oral anticoagulant in a patient with a mechanical heart valve or some of these other situations because there just isn't the evidence for it at the moment. So, so another thing to consider. Um, in terms of the anticoagulants, so we've talked about the heparins, we've talked about the coumarins, and we've talked about um, the DOACs. Um, the other one to, to mention very briefly is a drug called Fondaparinax. Um, which, which is, is now in our, which is now our ETS uh, protocol. So it used to be an oxaparin one milligram per kilogram here. That's right. It's now from the Paranox two point five milligram subcut, unless you in severe renal failure. Uh, Absolutely. So right now, so from the Paranox, to be honest, works in a very similar way to the heparins in terms of its mechanism of action and where it works. It's a, it's a synthetic polysaccharide uh, protein. So similar to, it's very, in all, for all intents and purposes, it's very similar to the way heparin works. Um, we here at this trust have adopted it for ACS because there is some evidence to say it's superior to, to low molecular weight heparins and ACS. So that's the reason we use it. It's also got a place in treating your more traditional anticoagulant regime, so DVT, PE, et cetera, in your patients that develop HIT. So when I say HIT, I mean heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, um, which is where the heparins can have an, an idiopathic um, situation where they drop platelets very, very sharply. Um, Fondaparinax and the synthetic um, products, they're not shown to do that, so they can be an option in that patient group as well. Um, obviously, all anticoagulants in theory can drop platelets and increase the bleeding risk. Um, evidence to say in some situations more so than the antiplatelets. So whenever we're starting whatever anticoagulant, we need to be having a very, very thorough risk-benefit conversation with the patient. Um, It's quite a big decision to start taking an anticoagulant. Um, And we need to be safety netting them in in terms of things they should and shouldn't be doing. So blood from any unexplained orifice, so blood blood in um, hematuria, lactari stools, hematemesis, any kind of uh, blood in the cough, that sort of thing. Head injuries, they need to seek medical attention very, very quickly. Uh, and the fact that they're more likely going to get um, peripheral hematomas and things like that. Um, and they need to get, basically they're people that need to get medical attention a lot more quickly because they're at a much higher risk of bleeding. Uh, yeah. So always a always a high risk group. And there's lots of other, lots of other things we can talk about. Um, and that then comes into it that, you know, I, 
yes, you have AF, but you have a mobility issue, you fall a lot. Yep. There are, you know, that, that comes into the consideration. It does come into it. So, so NICE is quite clear as well. Um, it, it's an easy thing to say that a patient falls a lot and they're frail, and that's why we don't want to give them an anticoagulant. NICE is actually very clear, particularly in AF, that that should not be a factor for us not to offer an anticoagulant to a patient. The benefit of taking an anticoagulant in AF is so much higher than not taking it, uh, unless they have an incredible bleeding risk, um, is that just the fact that they're potentially going to fall um, or frail should not preclude them to, to not have an anticoagulant. Um, so it shouldn't be a normal reason. That being said, you have to look at that particular patient at that particular time. Mm. Um, so we shouldn't be blanket saying we don't give older people, older, frail, falling people anticoagulants. That's, mm. that's not a reason. Mm. Um, We'll touch very briefly. So all these anticoagulants we've talked about, um, when we talk about anticoagulants for a person that has an active clot, they don't break that clot. This is a really important thing that I think some people get confused. What they will do is prevent a clot from getting bigger and getting more stable. And as a result, um, the body will naturally um, break up this clot over time. So by giving anticoagulants, we either prevent the clot from forming in the first place, or we stop an existing clot from getting bigger, which is a very important distinction. Now, there are situations where we get patients who have got, um, say, an acute phases of an ischemic stroke or the acute phases of an MI, mm. who we need, in, in the clinical scenario, we need to break that clot. Mm. That is the, the treatment. An anticoagulant, unfortunately, won't cut it because the clot is doing the damage at that point in time. Mm. Now, when we need to break a clot in these situations, we have to use a thrombolytic therapy. Mm. Um, so thrombolytics are anticoagulants. Massive P falls into that as well. Exactly, massive P, you're quite right. So massive P, ischemic stroke, um, MI. Um, we need to think about, if, in, if appropriate in that situation, we need to think about breaking that clot and restoring, mm. pr- restoring the circulation. Mm. The main drug that we use for this now is something called tissue plasminogen activators. Mm. So the body's got its own natural way of breaking down clots, and that's via a mechanism, um, uh, a, 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 a compound called plasmin. So plasmin is a natural protein that floats around in the system, uh, and when we do have a clot that's causing problems, that is what causes natural degradation of fibrin. So you remember the thing that links everything together, um, it degrades the fibrin into inactive little fragments and, and therefore stops a clot from forming. This is naturally in the blood. Um, Plasmin is made is, is made from plasminogen, and plasminogen is the precursor to that. Now we have drugs called tissue tissue plasminogen activators, which potentiate the, the amount of plasminogen, the activation of plasminogen, to create plasmin to break up those clots. Um, these are the place drugs, so to speak. Alteplase, alteplase, tenecteplase, retaplase thrombolytic drugs. Um, so here at this trust, we use alteplase for our PEs and our strokes, uh, and we use tenecteplase for our, for our MIs, um, but they, you, you, can, you can use a combination of them for these sort of things. Also used in cardiac arrest, if you believe a thrombus to be Absolutely, the cause of yeah. cardiac arrest. So the reason, if, if you think there's a clot that's, caught, that's restricting the blood flow to an area of the body, then you would be considering a thrombolytic drug. Sure. Um, in MIs, they've gone a bit out of fashion because PCIs are found to be more effective, but they've still got a real big place in, um, in your massive cardiovascularly unstable PEs and thrombolizing strokes in the early phases. Um, 
So these are short infusions. So we usually give a small loading dose, depending on the drug we're giving, and then a short infusion. Uh, and then we'd be monitoring very, very carefully that patient for a response. Yeah. So these are these are life-saving drugs. I've, I've seen them used in ED yeah. to save people's lives. Yeah. Uh, and these are the only real drugs that you can use that will break the clot. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're very important drugs. I mean, you mentioned earlier about thinning blood. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously they don't thin blood, but uh, like you obviously, I've not seen them being used. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, uh, we, I mean, I think it was in a cardiac arrest situation, but uh, um, they, they had been thrombolized. And then when I was asked to then get the second cannula in, hmm. the water, uh, the, the blood coming out of that cannula had the consistency of water. I yeah. mean, there was no thickness to it. Because literally uh, you pulled the, you pulled all that protein, all that fiber in that blood, inactivated it. It's so you, trickling like water. Absolutely. It's just no ability to clot whatsoever at that point. So they're very, very powerful drugs. And this is the problem. Unfortunately, when, when giving these drugs in life-saving situations, we, if we can, we have to consent the patient because unfortunately by giving them this therapy, we could kill them right there and then just from a massive bleed. And it has happened when I've worked in hyperacute stroke, um, we made the decision to thrombolize a patient um, and unfortunately they've died almost immediately after we've given the thrombolization because they've bled. They've had a hemorrhagic transformation and they've bled. It is a risk that we have to consider uh, and it's a really difficult one for clinicians and I'm glad it's not something that I have to do. I only advise on the dosing. Um, but very, very, very powerful drugs, um, all the places. There is a slightly older drug, um, which some people might have heard of, streptokinase, mm. um, which is a really interesting product that came, came from streptococci that had this thrombolytic effect. It was the first thrombolytic we used. Generally, we don't use it at all anymore. Um, these newer tissue plasminogen activators, more effective. Uh, is another one that we make antibodies to, so you can only use it. That's right, you can only ever use it X amount of time. In fact, once, really speaking, because then it'll be useless next time. Um, so generally speaking, we don't use it much anymore. Also, got immunological problems. You can put people into anaphylaxis with that. And the last thing you want was someone with a massive PEs, then you put them in anaphylaxis as well, then you're really struggling. Um, so thrombolytics, another very important type of anticoagulant, also always, obviously, never for prolonged use, but for a life-saving treatment, they're a really important thing to know about. Um, to touch very, very briefly on antiplate, dual antiplatelet with anticoagulant therapy. So there'll be a minority of patients who have got a legitimate indication for both of these treatments. Well, so that's your ACS, acute management, yeah. isn't it? So that's your aspirin, your clopidogrel, plus your fandoparanox. So Absolutely. there's your dual plus an anticoagulant, yeah. So at that point, we've got that unstable atherosclerotic plaque um, which is which is being formed by the platelets and the fibrin, and we need to use a mechanism to knock out both of that, because the risk benefit when they're having in this acute situation is we need to we need to take out that clot in, in any way we possibly can. Yeah. Um, in terms of making it get bigger, so you're quite right. ACS will be a situation where we'll do that. Um, longer term, there will be patients that will need to take both together. Now, when you're taking an anticoagulant with an antiplatelet together the bleed risk goes up quite considerably, um, which is logical because it's via two different mechanisms that were we're causing that anticoagulant effect. Um, A classic example would be your patient that has ischemic heart disease or has had an MI who also has AF. That would be a legitimate indication to have an antiplatelet and an anticoagulant at the same time. 
Now, it becomes very complicated in terms of what we can and can't use in combinations at that point. So for example, a patient with AF who's had an MI might require an anticoagulant and two, uh, sorry, an anticoagulant and two antiplatelets at the same time. Their bleed risk goes up even higher. When we're looking at these patients, we need to always have a specialist involved. Their care needs to be initiated by a specialist, usually a cardiologist, if not a stroke, a stroke doctor. Um, or a vascular doctor, and they need to be on that combination for as short as we can possibly clinically justify because the bleed risk goes up massively. Um, we need to be careful about the combinations we're using. So the DOAX, there's not a lot of experience of using antiplatelets with the DOAX, particularly using triple therapy. Um, warfarin, there's a little bit more, uh, and that potential of reversibility with the vitamin K becomes a little bit more important in that, that case. Um, so I don't want to go too much into that sort of thing, but there are legitimate reasons we can use antiplatelets and anticoagulation in the long term for patient for better patient outcomes. So it's just as a, as a final point, because we did mention earlier about the reversal of warfarin, mm -hmm. that there are so uh, there are some conditions where to completely reverse the warfarin is not an issue. So mm -hmm. AF, for example, if you have a patient who you think is bleeding who has AF, you can completely reverse the warfarin yes. to deal with that acute phase, and then once you've dealt with that acute bleed, the patient can then be restarted Absolutely. and go back on. There are other conditions to the metallic heart valve we talked about mm. where you complete anticoagulation is not recommended. Absolutely. So yeah, a complete reversal. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, complete yeah, reversal, complete reversal of, of the warfarin is not. That's right. Yeah. I mean, when the patients, when you've got patients who are at very very high risk, so AF, depending on what their Chad Vast is. Um, their risk of throwing a clot in that acute phase from AF is relatively low. A patient that um, has got a mechanical heart valve and lots of other risk factors for, for throwing a clot um, where you need to reverse the warfarin um, is a completely different situation and it has to be a case-by-case -case scenario at that pace. Mm -hmm. So a very good, we've, we've had this example in, in ED where we've had suspected intracranial bleeds in patients that have, uh, that have a mechanical heart valve. Yeah. We've had very, very vociferous conversations, let's say, between the ED consultants, the hematologists, the acute med consultants about what we should be doing early on. If we reverse it early on, do we throw a stroke? If we don't reverse it, is the damage done from the bleed? It's an incredibly different, difficult situation. The key thing is, at that point, is to look at severity and the survival rate, possibly, of, mm. what, of what's going on in that situation. Um, and getting as much input as we put, as much information as we can as early as we can. These are very very specialist situations, um, yeah. but you do have to consider reversal. Um, mm. Generally speaking, if someone has had a catastrophic bleed and they're also on an anticoagulant for a high risk situation, mm. you would usually favour reversing. Usually, there will be situations where you don't, but most clinicians would agree that reversing the immediate problem. You, you can only treat the problem that's in front of you sure. and then deal with the, the rest of the problems would be the would be the usual strategy. Um, sure. so it's a really, really important one. Mm. Um, you have reminded me there's one other thing I was going to say, which is about when we're starting warfarin. Mm. So warfarin obviously you need to get the INR between two and three um, to have that therapeutic effect. Sure. That could take three days, that could take two weeks. Mm. And in that two week period, um, your, your patient is not gonna necessarily be properly anticoagulated. Mm. 
you may have seen situations where we do something called bridging. Mm-hmm. So we will bridge people with um, anoxaparin or a low molecular weight heparin uh, onto warfarin. So an interesting situation where we're giving them two anticoagulants at the same time. Um, if we're loading warfarin, we might, it might take three or four days for their, for their INR to get up to level. So we'll give them anoxaparin, which is a direct inhibitor, mm-hmm. um, which makes sure they're therapeutically anticoagulated at the same time. Mm-hmm. Once their INR, because heparins don't have any effect on INR, mm-hmm. once their INR is between two and three, then we can stop the, the anoxaparin and keep them going. That's one reason in terms of the INR being subtherapeutic. The other reason to consider is when you give warfarin, warfarin also, um, vitamin K is responsible for something called uh, the generation of a protein called protein S. Protein S, conversely, is a anticoagulant natural protein versus all the clotting factors. So in the initial stages, if you give warfarin, you're actually knocking out some of your own body's anticoag- your, your, own, your body's own natural anticoagulants. And as a result, if you don't give some sort of covering anticoagulation, you're actually conversely at a higher risk. So in a weird situation, if you anticoagulate someone with warfarin without giving them any cover, you're putting them at a slightly higher risk of actually developing a clot. It's a very interesting one. Mm-hmm. So that's another reason why we'll potentially bridge them sure. by giving them some anoxaparin at the same time. Just something to consider when we're when we're starting it. Sure. Uh, and do you have any experience with octoplex in the reversal of any of these agents in yeah. a patient with a catastrophic bleed? Absolutely. So octoplex is a biological. Uh, it's not a drug per se. It's um, it, it's activated proteins effectively. Um, there's good evidence to say that octoplex helps outcomes, particularly in warfarin and in heparin. So if we have catastrophic bleeds that we need to reverse quickly, we can use octoplex um, as a biological to be able to get better outcomes from that. Less evidence for the DOAX. Okay. Probably only because the DOAX are newer and we've got less experience yeah. in using it. I can tell you personally, I've seen octoplex being used quite successfully in patients that have had quite big bleeds on a DOAC. So it seems in practice we're using it um, quite well. It's not a drug per se, but it, it has got evidence in terms of using it. And these are infusions over mm. over X amount of time to be able Expensive to do Expensive and yeah. uh, in distrust, you need a consultant hematologist approval to use Absolutely, it. yeah. It's it's always, it, it's a, partly a cost, cost issue because these infusions are very, very expensive. Um, and we need to look at what the damage is and whether whether using that product at that point is actually going to affect the outcome of the case. Sure. sure. Right, thank you so much again, Canal. Pleasure. And then that is anticoagulation covered. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. That was the Take Orally Therapeutics Anticoagulants podcast. You can find more information at www.takeorally.com where you'll find the blog entry for this podcast uh, plus the take visually for this podcast. Don't forget you can also find Take Orally on both Facebook and Twitter for more information about research and education opportunities within acute medicine, emergency medicine and major trauma. You can find Any Wage Dream on both Facebook and Twitter.